Good afternoon, everyone. It is the 5th of May, and we're looking at Numbers chapters 12 and 13. So two chapters today. Are we going to do both? Huh. Okay, let's try. Let's see how far we get. Uh, this is the Daily Bible Reading Show. You're watching this live from Cambridge. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Help us to learn from it, to glean from your wisdom, and to learn from your grace. Help us to reflect that grace and glory and generosity that we've received through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, maybe particularly for this prayer, um, help me to spot anything particular um, that you're saying to us in the midst of current events. Um, then I think about um, some of the occurrences that are happening in churches right now, dealing with issues of culture, dealing with issues of possible and spiritual abuse. And I wonder if today's passage might help us to navigate those issues. Um, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't know. Maybe, maybe it will say something, maybe it won't. But I thought, you know, I'd pray for that. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, we do this every day uh, when I have the time to do so. Usually it's after work, but I have the afternoon off. Um, also because usually I'm leading like a Bible study um, on Wednesday afternoons. I don't have to uh, for these coming weeks, so I can do this. So let's look at Numbers chapter 12. Um, yeah, let's just, just look at 12 first, and then we'll move on to 13. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked, Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was very a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now there's a memory verse for you. The most humble man on the earth? Maybe you can have that trivia, Bible trivia, Moses, who, is, who wrote this book. So he wrote, I am the most humble man on the earth. Very humble of you, Moses. Verse 4, at that time, at once, sorry, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam leprous, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please, heal her. The Lord said to Moses, If her father had spat in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazeroth and encamped in the desert of Haran. So reads Numbers chapter 12. So, yeah. Okay, so kind of like a squabble between Moses and his brother and sister who are envious of Moses' position before God and before the people. And uh, they make two complaints. Uh, firstly, they complain about his wife. Uh, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron, so this is Moses' brother and sister, began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. So, um, Cush is modern-day, um, it's the ancient equivalent of Ethiopia. So uh, it's saying that Moses married someone who is not Jewish, who doesn't look Jewish. Um, um, Ethiopia is in Africa, so probably had darker skin. And they made a big deal about that. You know, Moses, he married outside of our peoples. And um, that's verse 1. But verse 2, they, they then speak about Moses' position, exclusive position before God. And they say in verse 2, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? So here, um, even though they say they began to talk, obviously they are talking um, either among themselves, you know, Miriam and Aaron, or they are talking to their friends, you know, they're gossiping and they're just talking trash about Moses behind his back. Um, and again, they made comments about his choice of wife, you know, Kushite. Um and yeah, about maybe it, it might have, have had a tinge of racism there uh, because she wasn't Jewish. She wasn't one of their people. And then immediately they complain about his position. And so you can see that there's this, it's kind of insincere, you know. Um, they're using one to kind of springboard on the other issue. You know, he's married the wrong person and maybe Moses is the wrong kind of leader. And I think the second issue is what they're really getting at. Why is it that Moses is getting all this attention? Why is he considered special? And again, I can't tell whether it's just them talking to one another, but I suspect they're talking to other people because when he says, when they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses and not, not also to us? So at best, they're plotting against Moses one another, but at worst, they're trying to sow seeds of discontent against Moses. You know, why is he the only person who gets to call the shots? You know, maybe um, other people should be involved in sharing that position, that honor. And this is remembering that the previous day, um, well, previous chapter we read yesterday, uh, that Moses actually appointed 70 other elders, leaders, 
to receive and share his spirit with. So actually Moses was rejoicing that other people were able to share the spirit, this gift of this prophecy. Moses actually wanted more people to have this ministry and he didn't want it to be exclusive to himself. If anything, he felt it was too much of a burden for himself. But here are other people looking at it and saying, I want that. You know, and what's sad it's, is, is that it's his brother and sister. You know, people who are actually already very close to Moses, who know him in character, who are his own family members, and who also have kind of like um, high positions. Aaron was the high priest, and his sons were the priests. And only people in his family could occupy this very, very prestigious position in serving God. But they weren't happy. And so they gossiped about this. And it's interesting that the end of verse 2 says, And the Lord heard this. Meaning they thought they could get away saying this as if God wouldn't hear it. And, but he did. But he did. And if we skip over to verse 4, it says, At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But uh, in between that, we have this interesting verse, verse 3, about describing in reality, what kind of person Moses is, it says here he was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, the most humble person <laughs> in the whole planet, in other words, which isn't a very humble thing to say. But I think um, it's worth saying because it immediately just quashes all these kinds of um, talk that, you know, people like Miriam and Aaron were saying, oh, he, he's very proud, you know, he's gotten too big for his britches, that kind of thing. And, you know, he is monopolizing the power. Actually, no, Moses was humble. And the word humble here in the Old Testament is not just like saying, oh, <laughs> you know, he's, he has a very humble and meek character. But the idea of humility is always in reference to God. So he always saw his position in reference to God, how he was lowly compared to God. No one can compare to his greatness. Whereas for them, they were just comparing one to another. You know, you and me, I'm better than you. You know, I, I should be ahead of you. I'm older than you, which was the case uh, with, with Miriam. And so, um, yeah, but Moses, actually, he always saw his position, his status, his relationship in comparison to God. And I think that's a, that's an explanation for his humility and his lowliness. But God intercedes. Uh, notice it's not Moses who does anything about this. Maybe he doesn't even know what they were saying about him. But God does, and God intercedes. Verse 4, at once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, said to them, come to the tent of meeting, all three of you, kind of like summoning um, students to the headmaster's office. Uh, actually, that happened to me once when I was in primary school, and I can't even remember what it was for. I think I was just there to collect a report or something, but I was standing beside the headmistress, and I was, I was, I was, I was like shaking my leg. Like I was just, just very agitated, and the, the headmistress said to me, stop doing that, <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, sorry, yeah, and it seems that kind of come here to the tent of meeting, kind of come to the office immediately, all three of you. That's what God is saying. So he's going to do something about what they just said. So the three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance of the tent. So his personal involvement in this issue. And he summoned Aaron and Miriam and he said to them, listen to my words. And essentially he's describing just how special Moses is, but in relationship to God. 
And in essence, what he's saying is, what you're saying before Moses, you're saying before me. You're not, you're not just saying about a person, but you're saying about a person whom I've chosen, I've given my favor to, towards, and you should recognize it's my authority that has put Moses where he is. So verse 6, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, I speak to him in dreams. And so it's talking generally about people whom God speaks to. And also, I guess, describing Miriam at, and Miriam and Aaron because they said, hasn't the Lord spoken to us also? So I speak to them in visions, in dreams. But it's not the case with Moses, verse 7. This is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. Kind of like confirming verse 3, compared to everyone else, he's the most faithful person. And in verse 8, with him, I speak face to face. Um, so God actually talks to Moses um, kind of like a buddy. You know, face-to-face uh, -face means there's this conversation that goes back and forth, you know, like you meet someone at a coffee shop. Imagine meeting God. And God says, that's, that's what I do with my friend Moses. He says, clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of God. You know, no one else has this kind of access. Everyone else has like spurts and um, bits and pieces. And that's the case for the rest of the Old Testament as well. Moses was the prophet. He, he was special amongst even all the other prophets because Moses could actually have this direct appointment with God. He could actually ask God and talk to him directly, unlike all the other prophets. And then he says to Miriam and Aaron, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He said, don't you realize that, you know, this is me you're talking about, not just Moses, my servant Moses. And then verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them, and then God left. And when God left, the cloud lifts in verse 10, and when the cloud lifts, suddenly you can see Miriam covered in leprosy, in this skin disease. And it says they're like snow. So it's from head to toe. It's, it's very obvious. It must have felt horrible. And more than that, it was obvious that God did this. You know, leprosy, again, was considered almost an incurable disease, almost like the equivalent of death. And God had pronounced this judgment on Miriam. And you wonder, why not Aaron as well? But I guess because Aaron was still useful as... Um, as, as the high priest, but I guess to make it obvious that God was not happy, he cursed Miriam. And so Aaron turned towards her and saw he, that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, verse 11, please, my Lord, do not hold this against us. He recognizes that he's sinful as well. He sinned us, the sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her by, be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. And immediately Moses cries out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal, heal her. And essentially God says to him, um, not immediately, <laughs> seven days, seven days. And he gives the reason that she has insulted God. And he used the illustration of someone who's ins been insulted uh, by, uh, by her father. So verse 14, the Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spat in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? So imagine, so essentially, um, Miriam has spoken against God. And so Miriam is now bearing this disgrace of dishonoring her own father. To confine her outside the camp seven days, after that she can be brought back. 
So she's outside the camp. The whole camp stays there. After seven days, she joins them again, and then they move on. And that's the end of the chapter. Um, what do we see here? We see uh, a kind of envy, envy for ministry, envy for position that God has given to Moses. And I think, you know, when, again, I keep coming back to that verse where it talks about Moses being humble. And I think it was obvious that Moses in and of himself had the kind of character of a leader that was good. And I think that's why they kind of spoke these things in secret or they spoke these things to other people. They didn't even say these things to Moses because I think they knew that Moses was a cut above the rest. They could tell why is it that God chose Moses, or at least they could tell the effect that Moses' relationship with God had changed them. But you see a clash of characters. They, all they saw was position. They didn't see their envy. They didn't see that Moses was actually a really good guy. How, how fortunate, how blessed they were to have someone like Moses. Uh, and you see this as well later on when Moses intercedes from Miriam. You know, he doesn't hold it against them. It doesn't seem as if you know, he was angry at all. If anything, God was the one who was offended at their comments. So, but it's really ugly. I mean, you, it's almost like your own siblings envying after you if you have a promotion and they say, oh, you know, he doesn't deserve that. Or actually more, I think sad, sadder still is when Christians envy one another in ministry. You know, that person doesn't deserve that ministry. That person doesn't deserve that thing. And I think... Oftentimes, um, they don't realize that they're speaking against God. They don't realize that God hears. Because, you know, again, um, verse 2, the Lord heard this. And, and that comment is there just to say as if they didn't think that God was in the room when they made these comments. Um, yeah, and just to be very careful um, and to recognize that when God chooses his leaders, it's God's choice, but also that, you know, I wonder why weren't they just thank I think thankful for having their own brother who was humble, who was, you know, interceding for them, who was loving them in this way. They they all they saw was just position, power, and they wanted to have that for themselves for themselves. But, you know, uh in case we go, oh, bad them and you know, thankfully we don't have that, you know, this was his brother and sister. I think uh rather than going down that route and say, oh, thank God, we're not like this. We don't have leaders like this. I think it's a warning saying we, we can all feel this way. In fact, I think we all do. And to almost nip it in the bud, um, I don't, I, I can dare say, and I think in my heart as well, you know, I, I, I said before, you know, it is really hard for me not to compare myself with other people. Um, and oftentimes um, the antidote for that for me towards that is just to think of ways to be thankful for that, uh, to be to look away from just what I have or what I don't have, but to be thankful for what God has blessed uh, other people in terms of their ministry, their fruitfulness, uh, their growth in um, godliness. And I think if we are able to do that, I think there's a kind of healthiness then in being able to recognize relationship with God, but also with others who are well, in the same business, in the same kind of ministry, same kind of work, in serving God together. And the opposite of that then is just this very unhealthy kind of like backbiting and uh, kind of like 
gossiping and kind of like just really, really unhealthy form of competition that results in, you know, God being angry with his servants. Um, anything else? Um, uh, well, Moses, he does pray for Miriam to be um, healed and God doesn't heal her immediately. He does eventually, but he does want her to love, learn her lesson. And I think, um, therefore, if ever we were in such a position as Miriam, and I wouldn't discount that. I mean, if ever there's a situation whereby God did pour out judgment and that we are punished for our gossip or our envy and that kind of thing, um, to try to learn the lesson from that. You know, God actually wants Miriam to not to repeat this kind of sin and mistake and envy. And so that's why he keeps, keeps her away for seven days. And um, I think if that ever happens to us, you know, to be wary of that and to learn from that, not to waste those seven days. I don't know. Um, anything else? Um, let, let's look at chapter 13 and come back to this. Mm. Um, by the way, um, one of the things, and I don't know if this, this makes sense. I think I've learned how to deal with envy and competition by having worked in non-Christian contexts and then coming back to a Christian ministry is just really helpful. Uh, I remember uh, several times, actually, um, you know, um, you know, some church, some ministry will be considering someone for a position, a pastoral position, and someone will say, um, "Oh, but this person has only ever served in a church context, only a Christian ministry context, and uh, maybe it might be useful and helpful for this person to maybe have worked in the real world before." Let's uh, say real world. You, you understand what I'm getting, right? You know, a non-Christian kind of like non-ministry not surrounded by Christians every day, 24-7 kind of context. I think, and then if they wanted to come back, they would be in a better position to serve. And I didn't get that a long time ago when they said that, but actually now I really do. Because I think um, this is normal <laughs> in a business context, even in an academic context, you know, people backbiting and kind of envying one another and kind of jostling for position. And it's sometimes even encouraged in a very bad way. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but I think if you learn how to deal with those kind of situations and your own responses to that in a kind of a secular or a kind of a worldly context, I think then coming back to a Christian context where everyone is kind of like Christian and doing ministry, I think you there is a kind of wisdom that comes from that that translates well into ministry. Um, uh, I don't know what biblical basis I have for saying that, but just from experience, and I, I, I found that to be true, um, uh, especially when the rewards and especially when the competition is greater, especially when the kind of uh, temptations are greater, you know, um, or more real, I put it that way, you're more exposed. And then you really have to exercise all those um, you know, responses of you know praying about things and being patient and forgiving one another, especially you know when the person isn't even a Christian. Um, I think that really helps when you come back into a Christian context and then you're dealing with a brother in Christ. 
you know, maybe another person who is in ministry. And then you realize that, hey, it's actually, I think what, what it really does help is that you're able to recognize for what it is. Maybe that's it. You know, I think a lot of times you go through ministry and we either gloss over the sins as almost acceptable sins or we innocently think, oh, that's not going to happen here because, you know, we're all a church of brothers and sisters. But I think it's very naive. I think it's going to happen and it does happen a lot and maybe even more. But what's helpful is being able to name it and deal with it and to repent of it quick, quicker and more effectively than, than you would in a secular setting. Uh, again, I'm not sure if there is a kind of biblical basis for this. This is just really coming from experience, I guess. But um, uh, other people have said this to me in the past. I found this to be true from my own experience. I wonder, I wonder if it's really, really helpful to step out of just purely 100% Christian context sometimes in terms of relationship and to see that actually when you respond and when you, without outside of the confines of this safe Christian bubble, to suddenly realize that, hey, actually these kind of situations in my heart actually do happen. I need to learn to deal with that. And then when it happens again inside the safe situation of be being in church or in ministry, you are able to see it for what it is. Okay, this is envy. This is gossip. This is not good. That person actually is suitable as a leader, is doing a great job. God has blessed him. I want to rejoice in that and not to be bitter about that. If you're able to do that in you know a normal work setting, and isn't it true, you know, usually in sermons, we, we, that's why we tell other people to do that, but maybe you don't have the practice <laughs> of doing that within a Christian situation. And I wonder if that practice really just helps that real world experience. Okay, 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 let's move on to Numbers chapter 13. This is kind of rambly, I'm sorry, yeah. Chapter 13. Should we do 13? Yeah, let's just do 13. It's quite long, but let's look at it. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All, these, all of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shammau son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb son of Jephani. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, Paltai, son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodai, from the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadai, son of Susai, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamalai, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur, son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, uh, Naphtali Nashbai, son of Vosh, Vof, Vophsai, V-O-P-H-S-I, Vophsai, <laughs> from the tribe of Gad, Gewel, son of Makai. I never know whether it's I or E. So M-A-K-I, is it Makai or Maki, like the sushi, the Maki sushi? Anyway, verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Now, this is interesting because Hoshea means um, God, or he saves. So God saves, saves, but Joshua, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh's name as you embedded into, into Joshua's name. So Yahweh saves. Uh, verse 17, when Moses sent them, these spies, these 12 spies, to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and into the hill country, so from south all the way up north, 
see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are st strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile, fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebohamath. Excuse me. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them. Very heavy, you know, two people to carry this cluster of grapes. Um, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites had cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, so down south. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, so the grapes. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him let me turn the page. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explore devours, eats up those living in it. All the people saw, all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Interesting, and that's chapter 13. Oh, I'm glad we read this because this is quite an important chapter. Uh, it's when Moses sends the spies, 12 of them, one from each uh, tribe, and you get the impression that they're young uh, representatives. So previously, you know, when we mentioned the tribes, we mentioned the leaders of the tribes, but these are not them. These are maybe younger leaders. And because it mentions Joshua as well, so Joshua was much younger than Moses. So therefore, um, and actually we know from um, the book of Joshua that they, when he went in was 40 years old. So all of them probably around the same age, younger leaders, each one representing the tribes so that they could come back and give testimony back to the tribes on, of their own account. So each one of their own people would give them the account of what they saw. But uh, Moses sends them, and he gives instructions from 17 to 21 to go through the entire, top to bottom, go through the entire land, give a report about the agriculture, you know, is it um, fertile or poor, verse 20, about the kind of 
towns, what kind of trees, what kind of fruits, and he particularly says bring back some fruit. So that's kind of like evidence. I was watching uh, yesterday actually this. Sorry, this is kind of random, but I was watching this video about uh, grapes in Japan that cost. Is it a thousand U.S. dollars for a cluster of grapes? Yeah, yeah it was a cluster, a thousand U.S. dollars. They were huge, though. I mean, each grape was like that. And apparently, I didn't know this. In Japan, people eat grapes uh, without the skin, so they actually peel the skin before they eat grapes. And so they ate these grapes, which were like the size of plums. And imagine the grapes to be something like that—the grapes that they brought back because they needed two people to carry a pole, and they had to hang one cluster of grapes together with some pomegranates and some other fruit as well. I can't remember what it is. Um, uh, the, the, the pomegranate and figs, but you know, two guys with the pole. You can imagine, and then and, and they hanging on the grapes, and I imagine you know, these really lush, very uh, fruity, very amazing tasting grapes that they brought back. That looked amazing, and so when it came back, they they said, you know, the land was amazing initially. Um, verse twenty-seven: We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So evidence of just how fertile, how blessed, how much. Um, I mean, they've been walking through the desert, you know, no, no, no vegetation, but here is land that can support life because it can support vegetation, can support livestock, that kind of thing. So it is amazing, uh, as God has said it would be. But they do when they describe the people, verse eight twenty-eight. It's a different story. But the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified, very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and then they name all the different tribes: Amalekites in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites in the hill country, and the Canaanites in the sea along the Jordan. So the Canaanites were the people that. Uh, seafarers, or at least they were living near the sea, and then there were people on the hills and those on the plain. And but one one of them stood up and said, "No, no, no, we should take it." And that was Caleb, you know, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Um, and he said, "You know, we should go up. We, we, we can we can do this. You know, let's let's go and take the land. You know, God has given us this land." And I tend to remember in Joshua as well, Caleb later on at eighty years old. Saying, you know, give me this land. You know, he's been waiting to take this land, and right from the beginning, he said he he he's trusting in God, and he's just saying we should we should go for it. But everyone else didn't say the same thing, and I I'm assuming here not including Joshua, because Joshua is together with Caleb. Um, uh, the, eventually, they're the only people who lead the people into the promised land forty years later, but. You know, uh, but the other men, the other ten spies, verse thirty-one, they said, "We can't do this. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are." And what they do is they start spreading, spreading gossip, this bad report. I wonder if there's like kind of like a common theme here between what happens with um, Miriam and Aaron in the previous chapter. They, you know, they start gossiping, and so these spies start gossiping. And what they say is, "This land, it." Eats up people living in it, so they start exaggerating. As you walk in, and the lamb eats you up. <laughs> and they also describe the people there as they start describing that they're great size, and they call them the descendants of the Nephilim. We saw the Nephilim there. I think the last time we saw the Nephilim, um, this this was Noah's time, right? Uh, Genesis chapter six, verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth. 
And so this was an ancient people. They were heroes of all men of renown. So they were huge size. And he says, compared to them, we seemed like grasshoppers. So we were tiny compared to these guys, <laughs> these huge big Hulk-like, Thor-like, huge guys who go to the gym every day. You know, we'll lose to them. We're nothing to do. They're squashes like grasshoppers. That kind of thing. And so, yeah. So um, that's where it ends. I think I, I, I'm just looking ahead to chapter 14. That's when the people rebel. So obviously this report spreads among the people. Uh, and it's a bad report except for Caleb's, which says, let's go for it. Let's do this. Let's take the land that God has given us. Uh, what do we learn from this? I think, um, again, remembering that the 12 spies are representative of the 12 tribes. And it shows that their report influences not just their own take on things, but everyone else in their tribe. You know, the way in which they drum up support for their point of view is by exaggeration you know by you know winning people to themselves and it's a kind of like social aspect to news telling you know trying to get people to see things that you see by you know hyping it up so they talk about how the land devours them you know obviously you know they, they know it's hyperbole you know they went there they came back alive well <laughs> they, they were okay you know nothing happened to them but then they also describe the people as giants, you know, that they were grasshoppers. Again, they're using, they're, it's not that they turn into grasshoppers, but they just seem so small. You know, they seem, ah, oh, you know, they can squash us. And they're, again, they're using exaggeration, they're using hyperbole to bring across this news to their people to win them over to themselves. And these are, though young, they are representatives, they're kind of like leaders of their people. And here again, you know, if you think of them as leaders, you think of Miriam and Aaron as leaders, here are people who are trying to drum up support for their point of view by winning people to themselves. They're using speech. They're using, um, they, they are always opposing someone else. In this case, they're opposing Caleb, who says that they should go ahead. And so they oppose him and said, you know, no, we, we saw it for ourselves, you know, and we you should listen to us. And in both cases, I think what they forget is that God is listening as well. They speak as if, you know, God hasn't brought them to where they are, that God won't give them the victory, that God isn't going to have anything to say about this. And they speak as if it's just me and you, me telling you something so that you can support me at the end of the day. And I guess um, that would be the connection, I think. That's the kind of connection between chapters 12 and 13. Just how easy it is to win people over to you if you exaggerate, if you uh, are a leader of some sort, and you use that position to kind of like get people to just see your point of view, you know, and obviously, you know, that's, that's what they send them there to do. But I think they send them there to give an objective retelling of what they saw, not just what they thought or what they felt. I think it's okay to feel afraid. I think it's okay for them to have hesitancy. And, you know, even Caleb, when he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, he doesn't deny that the people there are fortified, you know, they have cities. He doesn't deny, they say, oh, that, he doesn't, up to that point, he doesn't deny that that's wrong. But he says, in spite of that, I think we can do this. You know, we can certainly do this. And there's a kind of confidence, there's kind of encouragement in the face of those challenges. But I think here are the other 10 young leaders who are themselves afraid, who are themselves hesitant, and therefore to reaffirm their insecurity, their hesitancy, 
they try to get everyone else to buy into their fears. So what does this tell us? Well, for one thing, when you're talking to people, it's much easier to spread fear than confidence. It's much easier to spread bad news than good news. Um, and here, you know, that's where, um, you know, people say, they're, therefore, haha, you know, Facebook, Twitter, social media, that kind of thing. And that's true. I, I, um, I did an interview um, a couple of months ago um, at this uh, international cafe. And uh, I knew this question was going to come up, but someone asked it anyway. You know, no one coached them, but they naturally asked this question. I get it quite, quite often. You know, Facebook is bad or, you know, there's just so much bad news on it and it is so dangerous and it really just infects you in terms of that outlook and a lot of misinformation as well. And I have to say that that's true. You know, you have to be careful. And if you were to decide that that's just not for you, I think I think there's a kind of wisdom for that. You know, you, you I think maybe you wouldn't lose very much by not being on social media. But what I did say as well was the way to deal with bad news is not to ignore it. You know, social media at the end of the day is people. You know, behind all these screens, as much as they, as they try to hide behind it, it's people. And if your aim is to win people over, it's always going to be tough, but you want to win people over with the gospel. You want to win people over to the truth and with good news. Now, there's a manner of doing that. There's a humble manner. You know, again, Moses with his humility, the most humble man of all the earth. You know, he, he didn't hold a grudge and he was praying for his sister who spoke against him. And that shows his humility as well. But, you know, wouldn't it be great those small your contribution, you made sure that whatever contribution you made in that kind of like public sphere, social sphere amongst your friends, or if you're a leader amongst your people, you made sure that it was good. You made sure that it was true. And you made sure that you encouraged them in the face of whatever untruth, whatever challenges they faced. So what is for what it's worth, that's what I said. Um, you know, if you were to stay, uh, be careful and don't buy into the bad news. But where possible, be the good news person. Be the kind of person who encourages and not discourages. Be the kind of person who doesn't just accentuate the fears, but actually helps people to recognize and to be courage, uh, courageous in the right way, in a godly way, in face of these fears. Um, and so I don't think it's... Um, Two different approaches. I think it's both and. I think there is a wisdom in stepping away and not being, not buying in too much into these new mediums. But at the same time, you know, recognizing that there are people, you know, to that social aspect of social media, there are people behind these screens, people behind these mediums. If and when given that opportunity to do our best to be as encouraging, to be as truthful to be as you know countercultural as possible. And we see that here with Caleb. We see that here as well with, with, um, with Moses. I think Moses, again, is someone who didn't, well, choose to do this on himself. You remember, again, he was almost a reluctant leader, you know, send someone else, you know, send Aaron. And it was God who raised him up, who chose him, and he poured his grace upon him. And if anything, to recognize Moses for his humility, for his humility, for his. And I think um, it's that combination of Moses' humility 
and Caleb's courageousness that helps us to see how then you deal with misinformation, with gossip, with envy, with slander, with people who just want to influence other people for the sake of getting them to their side, whereas here are people who see things from God's perspective, who actually, you know, if you heard them, you go, hmm, this is something I've never heard before. This is something that really inspires me to look towards God and not myself. But uh, it has to be said, you know, everyone listens to the other spies. You know, as, as you know, as... Um, as encouraging as Caleb was, you know, 40 years passed before he got to fulfill his, you know, his desire to go up and take the land. And uh, it might mean that you'll lose. It might mean that no one will hear you and you'll be dismissed and, you know, people won't listen to God. But I think all the more, all the more, it's important. I'm so glad that there was a Caleb in that group. I'm so glad that even though no one listened to him, that, um, you know, he spoke up. And he spoke the truth, and he spoke it courageously. So thank God for the Caleb's. Thank God for the Moseses, even though he is not appreciated by his own family. You know, thank God for his humility. Thank God for leaders like that if we have them in our churches. And pray for them. Pray for them to be courageous in the face of opposition and criticism. Pray for them to be bold in speaking the gospel. And pray for them while they're doing all this to be humble, to be lowly, and their relationship before God and before their friends. Okay, so that's Numbers 12 and 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for uh, this very, very relevant, I think very, very applicable uh, text in our lives today. When we are faced with so much fear and bad news, uh, Lord, and uh, shield us from that and shield us from the untruths, but also thank you for the truth of the gospel, that it speaks into the darkness, it has not overcome it, that thank you for Jesus, who through his spirit still declares this gospel, this salvation to be open to many, and we want to make that available, that message to many who have not heard it before. Help us when given the opportunity to be the good news people, to speak the gospel to our friends, even to our enemies, and especially, especially to ourselves. Thank you again for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.